Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It appears that waking up during the night is part of normal human sleep, and that for most of human existence, we slept in a way that is different than the one that we now consider a normal sleep pattern. Indeed, many people believe that good sleep is when it is straight through the entire night. This is not necessarily true. The sleep pattern that we are going to talk about is known as biphasic or segmented sleep. It's fascinating to the point that we have to re-educate ourselves about sleep. Roger E. Kirch is a professor of history at Virginia Tech. He studies and writes about this in great detail, and he kindly joins us to explain what may be for us a paradigm shift in how we look at the dynamics of sleep. Thank you, sir, for joining us. We do so much appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Before we delve into the more specifics of segmented sleep, how is it that you, as a historian, became interested in this topic. One would think this would be much more under the umbrella of a medical inquiry. How did you start with this? In the mid-1980s, I began uh, researching a book uh, that I knew would take much longer than anything else I had ever written, study of nocturnal life in the Western world prior to the Industrial Revolution, focusing heavily upon the British Isles but also less heavily, but also Western Europe and early America. And indeed, as a graduate student at Johns Hopkins, where I received my MA and PhD, I was trained as a early American historian. The one subject in undertaking this book that I absolutely dreaded having to address was sleep. I wrongly assume, no doubt many people do today, that it was a biological constant, a universal necessity, yes, but I also assumed that it had not varied in the past geographically, and all the more I was surprised to learn upon finding references to first sleep and second sleep and what people did in between, I was surprised to learn that there was indeed a different form of sleep, which I have come to conclude and have argued in the book was the dominant pattern, in fact, of human slumber in the Western world prior to the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. Give us then, please, a little bit more of a definition. What is first sleep? What is second sleep? They seem very obvious, but what do they really mean? Typically, a household in pre-industrial times was expected to go to bed between 9 and 10 p.m., though certainly there were exceptions. They would then sleep for three, perhaps three and a half hours or so, wake up shortly past midnight, remain awake for up to an hour or so, and then return to take what they termed a second sleep or a second nap for roughly a span of three, three and a half hours, whereupon they would finally awaken for good sometime around dawn. That said, not everyone, of course, slept according to this timetable. Aristocrats, for example, oftentimes went to bed at a later hour. They had artificial illumination, candles specifically, that allowed them not to retire as early as working households. 
But the interesting thing is, even though they might go to bed at midnight, their sleep was still segmented. They still generally awakened after a initial period of slumber, remained awake, and not unlike others, did practically anything and everything during that interval of consciousness, and then took a second sleep. I must very comfortably announce that when I read about the concept of the second sleep, my initial response was, that's me. That's what I do. And that's not what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to get in the bed and have the entire night sleep and wake up, feel rested. The concept of getting up in the middle of the night and doing something is contrary to to think about sleep. We seem to have gone from a pre-industrial society to an industrial society. And there's a lot of talk about bringing into our lives illumination into the evening hours. That may have caused some pressure for sleep patterns to be different. Do you find that that's substantiated? Yes. In 2015, I wrote an article for an historical journal entitled The Modernization of Western Sleep, in which I attempted to explain the transformation that took place erratically, gradually, generally over the course of the 19th century, from segmented sleep to the consolidated form to which we aspire today, if not always successfully. There were many causes to explain the transition that occurred. In my opinion, two were especially important. First was the increasing prevalence over the course of the 1800s of artificial illumination, more powerful than anything that had existed beforehand. Gas lighting was introduced in London the first decade of the 19th century, whereupon it became the predominant form of lighting for most of the 19th century until electricity began to eclipse it. The importance of artificial illumination was profound, both outdoors in the form of street lamps and within homes. As for its impact on sleep, any number of sleep scientists have been able to show that light is terribly important to how we sleep. It affects the human body clock, our circadian rhythms, of which there are many, but none arguably as important as the sleep-wake cycle. As a distinguished sleep scientist, Charles Seisler, at Harvard has remarked, every time we turn on a light switch, it's as if we are taking a dose of medicine that will affect how we sleep. Moreover, artificial illumination enabled people to stay up later than they had previously. This led to retiring to bed at 11 p.m., perhaps even later than that, whereupon, because their wake time in the morning was not altered. They still had to go to work roughly at the same time. Their sleep became shorter, more compressed, deeper, and permitted or at least enabled the transition to a single segment of lumber. But there was also a cultural, not just a technological consequence of the Industrial Revolution that was very significant. 
in this transformation from one pattern of sleep to another. Because of the values of the changes that took place over the course of the 19th century, efficiency, punctuality, profit-making, our attitudes toward sleep changed as well. To a degree far greater than ever before, sleep was now viewed as something of a necessary evil. And as such, the opportunity of taking a second sleep after one awakened was increasingly thought to be profligate, a waste, and contrary to the values of the Industrial Revolution. As such, in major cities on both sides of the Atlantic, especially London and New York, there arose early rising societies that led the way in what became a major reform movement on behalf of rising early and not remaining in bed, which was thought both unhealthy, but also contrary to personal success if you were at all ambitious. So there are two major variables here then. One is the cultural or sociological or psychological need to get up early to go to work and make more money and do things like that. But the other element is the introduction of light, which displaces or resets in a bad way our natural circadian rhythms. I can remember my father used to get up every night, roughly two o'clock in the morning. The TV stations went off the air at midnight. He listened to the radio in a dark room. How very different mm. than now. People wake up, the TV's on all night, they turn on their iPhones. We've introduced some new variables here that may mitigate things down the road. It's of concern, definitely of concern. But back to the notion of getting away from the second sleep, the early rising movement, was there an anger that sleep was an unfortunate reality that we needed biologically, but it took away from our activity, from our ability to do things? Are we seeing ramifications of that, do you think? The public in general in the Western world and ultimately the industrialized world became more and more time conscious. As we are today, more than ever, arguably, in this high wattage, 24-7 lifestyle of ours that we've embraced, that said, sleep scientists have shown quite powerfully as recently as a major study this past summer that sleeping through the night for roughly seven or eight hours at least is preferable to adopting deliberately unless you already experience it in the form of middle of the night insomnia is far preferable to adopting a biphasic sleep pattern. But of course, large numbers of people do suffer from middle of the night insomnia. It's the most prevalent sleep disorder in the United States. And I dare say it's probably the most common in the industrialized world, whereby, not unlike your father, evidently, people wake up in the middle of the night, as the title suggests, and they find themselves unable to get back to sleep. It's enormously frustrating. 
and a source for many of anxiety, which is insidious in that it only prolongs that sense of anxiety, their inability to go back to sleep. One of the separations that you wrote about, and it may be a matter of semantics, definition we apply to words is wakefulness versus insomnia. Insomnia has become a pathology. Wakefulness yes. now be just looking at a normal sequence of our biologically based sleep needs. To be awake is not necessarily to be an insomniac. Two different things. Now, I say this on the basis of having read more than 20 medical texts, many not in English, which I then had translated, portions at least, relating to sleep, medical texts stretching back to the 16th century. None of them view wakefulness in the middle of the night as being abnormal. In fact, they refer to it in three different contexts, those that do these medical texts. First, it's a prime time to take certain potions, pills, elixirs after one's first sleep is the most common terminology. It's an early form of chronopharmacology, the belief that certain forms of medicine work best at a specific hours in the day or night. The second context in which these texts refer to wakefulness in the middle of the night after one's first sleep is that you should then turn from one side that you've been sleeping on in bed to another, which was thought, given the rather primitive notions of that age, which was thought to aid digestion. And then third and finally, the period of wakefulness after first sleep, a handful of physicians believed was a opportunity in which to engage in connubial bliss, especially if you were interested in conceiving a child. To paraphrase a French physician writing in the 16th century by the name of Lauren Joubert, peasants who he observed seemed to be enormously prolific in the number of children that they had. To explain this, he wrote that too tired to engage in sexual intercourse after returning from the fields, barely able to stay awake to eat an evening meal, they would then go to bed. And then after their first sleep, when they are more rested, they engaged in intercourse to quote Joubert when he wrote, they enjoy it more and do it better. Interesting. You touched on the notion that people who return from the field, is there thought or consideration about the fact that so many people now have jobs that are what are traditionally called white collar, cerebral jobs, as opposed mm -hmm. to physical jobs? Do we see shifting in sleep patterns either historically or now? Because if someone works all day in the fields, they're going to be physically tired. You work all day in an office, you're going to be mentally tired. To judge, regardless of one's particular occupation today, we all seem to be anxious. Well, at least many of us seem to think that we can cheat sleep by burning not only the candle at both ends, but the candle itself by not allotting enough hours to the slumber that, that we need. I think this cuts across class lines. 
occupational lines, with the caveat that obviously large numbers of people, not by choice, but by necessity, are forced to work at night, some working a second job, moonlighting. And then, of course, those who are most impoverished and destitute, not unlike the poor three, four hundred years ago, for a variety of reasons, their sleep is normally very, very poor, whether because of disease, proximity to noise, bad weather, the cold, suffocating heat. But in general, in general, it's not popular for me to say this, but never have conditions been better for sound slumber. Notwithstanding the publicity given, and I'm not suggesting that it's inaccurate, that we are currently experiencing a quote-unquote epidemic of sleeplessness. But that's because of choices that we make. Some choices relating to working later than we have to in order to advance careers, substance abuse, which is nipical to sound sleep, being seduced by the electronic screens of our laptops, video games, smartphones, all of which are not only dangerous to sleep in terms of keeping us from it, but also the light from these electronic devices also result in postponing and or disrupting the sleep that we desperately need. We're not sleeping for as long as we need to. As you bring this very intriguing notion to the table, has medicine generally, not just sleep medicine, but the healing professions, have they embraced you? Are they looking at the notion that maybe there's a piece of understanding the sleep patterns and requirements that we're not giving enough attention to? What's been the response to your very intriguing uncovering of something that's really been around for a very long time? I've been very gratified by the response of the sleep medicine community. It's been very supportive. Some individuals in particular, or I hesitate to say that they have embraced my research, but nonetheless, they have given it widespread publicity. I speak more often to physicians these days than to historians, and very flattering has been an invitation to give a one-hour lecture as part of Oxford, master's of science degree in sleep medicine. What intrigues sleep specialists are two things, I think. One is that this research has shown that there are wide variations according to time and place in the slumber that we experience, that eight hours through the night has not been the norm, indeed, that there probably is no such thing as normal sleep. The second, more immediate benefit in their eyes is that Middle of the night insomnia, the most common sleep disorder in the United States and arguably the industrialized world, for many people, it's difficult to be more precise than that, but for many people, uh, rather than a disorder per se, uh, from the perspective of history, it's natural. It was normal, at least uh, before the Industrial Revolution. This knowledge 
based upon what I've been told from sleep physicians, based upon comments I have read following articles discussing this research, based upon personal emails I've received, is immensely reassuring to many people because they finally have an explanation for why they are waking up at night. They are not as anxious as a consequence and in some cases are able to fall back asleep more readily than would have ordinarily been the case. There have been, I'd say, maybe a half dozen newspaper columns written by self-described insomniacs who have essentially echoed what one columnist wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia several years ago. This person had tried everything to alleviate their insomnia, their middle-of-the-night insomnia. The solution that she happened upon was history, as she put it, which for someone who could barely light a burner in high school chemistry. When I read that, it was just immensely gratifying. Your work is very gratifying, and I have already employed it with some patients and told them that some of the middle of the night awakening is not necessarily the sign of a pathology, but it's more normal than not. Of course, in mental health, we have to look at the whole group of anxiety disorders or other things which could be of course but for most and, people, and, and can i just sure. interrupt to say <laughs> i'm i'm not an md i'm not a phd in psychology or neuroscience i'm a phd in history so when anyone ever asks me a medical question or anything resembling a question rooted in medicine, my first response is to see their physician. What I find, however, though be it that you are not medically trained, is that you are giving us a framework, another framework to look at this condition without it automatically being a pathology. That has been very helpful to me. It's been helpful to some of my patients. We have to say thank you for that. It's causing a lot of people to look at a piece of life with a little different angle. What's next? Are you doing more research? Are you involved with some clinical activities that may test your concerns? I have a website. A portion of that website is devoted to my sleep research, including a list of additional historical references that are particularly revealing, not just mere mentions of a first sleep or a second sleep, references that shed further light on this pattern of slumber. They now number well over 200. They extend from classical times to the late 19th century. This is something that I merely keep up to date. I add to upon coming across new information to segmented sleep. The current book I'm writing takes place in Belgium from 1914 to 1940. I hope to keep the title, The Town That Cried Wolf. I write about what I find at least personally compelling and hope that others will as well. In addition, I continue, forgive the pun, to be lulled back to sleep. And while I don't have any new research actively 
underway. Nonetheless, I remain alert to evidence that either confirms or, for that matter, revises what I have previously written. Sleep is one facet, obviously very important facet, of the research that I have done over the past 40-odd years. You've made a significant contribution. I thank you for it, and I'm hoping that it indeed will not stop. Please be so kind. Your website address, is it just your name? How do they get to your website? Very easily. I am one of four people in my immediate family who bear my last name, E-K-I-R-C-H. If you Google that, you will stumble upon my website, thanks to the auspices of Virginia Tech, where I teach. Sir, thank you so much for being with us and talking to us. Thank you. Thank you.